Last week we talked about the great hope of the church. Do you remember that? What is the hope of the church? To live forever with the Lord. What a glorious truth that is, and it was delightful, I hope, to look into those verses of all that is yet to come for the church, for the people of God. Today we're going to start discussing some of the many pictures that the Bible gives us to understand who we are as the church. God gives us pictures in his word to define the contours of our relationship with him as his people. In his word, he gives these images, these word pictures that relate to our human understanding and experience. God condescends to our level to give us things we know and relate to as as people who inhabit this earth. He gives us pictures that we will understand to help us understand how how we relate to him, and more importantly, how he relates to us. And while these pictures are wonderful, wonderful things, while they are precious gifts from God to us, the first thing we have to point out is that they are meant to inspire faith and hope in those things that are yet to be fully realized. Pictures in themselves aren't nearly so amazing as the actual lived moments in reality that they represent, right? Or that they capture. That is to say... While a picture of you when you were little, sitting on the lap of your mom or dad, snuggled in nice and tight, while that might be an incredibly precious photo and memory for you to hold on to, the photo is really only as special to the degree that it reawakens within you the value and the preciousness of the moment that it represents, right? It was that actual lived experience in reality and time and space that's captured by the photo that is meant to remind you and reawaken in you just how sacred and significant it was to have what you had. What's better for a child than to be nestled up in the arms and against the chest of one in whom they have everything they could ever want? Acceptance, genuine love and affection, security, protection, warmth, contentedness. So the photo is a beautiful thing, but the lived experience more beautiful still. For those who are married, what about a photo of the bride and the groom on their wedding day? It's a wonderful memento, of course, but its true value is its ability to help you feel like you're remembering and reliving one of the most sacred and beautiful moments of your life. That's the value of the photo. Even if it's only for a brief moment and in a limited way, some of you, it's a photo of you holding your newborn. Again, how wonderful to have that captured. You know, we live at a time that we have that gift, that blessing. The vast majority of human history, that wasn't a thing. Like anything you wanted to relive and remember from early on and years prior, it's your ability to contain it right there and to recall details. And that's, that's something that is a struggle the older we get, as we know. So what a, what a wonderful blessing to have the gift of photography. What about a picture, say, of the Grand Canyon? A picture high up in the Wind River Mountains out here, outside our back door. A picture of the nicest fish you ever caught or the nicest animal you ever harvested. I have a few photos of some incredible places in the mountains. I've gotten to stand with a few of you guys here at this church. And I can show those photos to people who haven't been there and they can appreciate the beauty. But in those moments, what are we always thinking in the back of our minds if we don't say it? Yeah, the the photo's nice, but if you could have stood there and seen with your own eyes. You get the picture. See what I did there? Cue the, cue the awful pastor jokes, the groaning. 
Pictures help us understand things. They help us experience things. They help us remember things. And similarly, God gives us pictures in his word, many of them actually, to help us see and experience, even if from afar, even if in a limited way, even as though seeing through a glass darkly, he gives us pictures to help us understand how he relates to us as his people and how we're to understand our relationship to him. And what's amazing about this topic of the church and pictures is that many of these biblical images are specifically having to do with the church, the gathered people of God. Those are the ones to whom he has given many of these images by which we're to understand our identity and our experience as his people. These are snapshots of real things, eternal things, that we are given the privilege of understanding and experiencing even now. As we discussed last week, the eternal has already come. The kingdom has come, albeit in a limited way, in an invisible, veiled, spiritual way. The kingdom has come in our hearts where the king rules now, invisibly. But one day it will be fully revealed. What a day that will be, tangibly, physically, to behold all of it. In the meantime, what has God given his people? Pictures, images which help us understand and even experience spiritual realities here and now. These pictures help us actually experience God's kingdom here and now as we are pointed toward heaven. So I want to begin today talking about some of these pictures in his word that God gives to us. We're only going to get to one today. And so picture number one is this, a picture of the church as family. A picture of the church as family. This is an image God has given to his people to help them understand who they are. John, in 1 John 3, 1, writes these amazing words. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. In other places, he's described as our king. Other places, as our savior. Other places, as our creator and our sustainer. But here and in many other places, what word does God use? Father. Family. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called not just servants, not just subjects, not just members, but children of God. And as though it's too good to be believed, John has to emphasize, and that is what we are. God our Father and we his children, what a picture for the church And when the Bible uses this imagery, it's referring to the perfect kind of father. A perfect heavenly father. Not fathers as the world often understands them, and tragically, as many of you, I'm sure, understand a father. Not the sinful kind. Not the abusive kind. Not the selfish kind. Not the proud kind. Not the leaving kind. The Bible refers to God as father in the perfect sense, portraying him as fulfilling perfectly Every deep longing that the human heart has on this earth for a father figure to be what a father should be. This is what the father in heaven supplies to his children, his church. Study after study after study has proven something in our cultural moment here today. By professionals, medical professionals, those who study sociology, Anthropology, psychology, study after study reveals this one truth that appears time and again 
And that is how absolutely disastrous is the fallout in children, first of all, and then as it expands in homes, and then finally as it expands further in societies. How absolutely disastrous the fallout when good father figures are absent from the home and from the family. And of course, much of the same can be said for the absence of a good mother as well. But the fact remains, the vast majority of incarcerations in our prison system, in our nation, are far and away one primary demographic. Not not universally, not completely, but far and away the majority. And that is men, first of all, make up the majority of those in prison, those incarcerated. And more specifically, men who lacked a good father figure in their life as a child, in their home. It's far and away the most common denominator. And what that has bred in our society is anger in the heart, bitterness in the heart, malice, and then eventually violence, and then just beyond fantasized violence, actual violence carried out in the body, and then an increase in crime, and then, of course, the prisons begin to fill up. All of these things thrive in fatherless circles. It's it's the most fertile ground for it. So how significant when the Bible says that God is a father who stays and who is good. That's what kind of father he is. Hebrews 13.5, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Is that not one of the greatest fears that children in our culture have to deal with, have to contend with now at a precious young age, vulnerable, should never have to be an issue? And yet it's the deep fear of the, the heart of a child. Will I be abandoned? to his church that God gives these pictures for a reason. He's the kind of father who doesn't just love. He loves perfectly. 1 John 4, 10 through 11. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I hope we all are clear on the reality of our condition as human beings, that of fallen creatures, that of those who contend with the flesh, with the sin nature. And what do we know to be true from the youngest ages up into our adult lives? Because of our sin, in our sin, what is true? Sin makes us want to hide. It makes us want to lie. It makes us want to get defensive and angry when someone confronts us with it. It makes us want to justify ourselves. At times, it makes us very angry at those who would dare to point ours out, and we quickly deflect by pointing out all the things that we've stored like ammunition to fire away at just the appropriate time if someone should dare to confront us with our sinfulness. This is what sin does. We hide in it. We lie about it. It's darkness. It's shame. It's fear. This is what sin does, and yet, this is amazing, as a perfect father God loves us in such a way, in spite of our sin, that we find ourselves, when his spirit moves, drawn to the light instead of choosing to remain hidden in darkness. Knowing what exposure is going to mean for us, we're drawn to his light as he draws us. We long for what he offers when his spirit is at work. 
even though we know we deserve his judgment, if we're being honest, we know it deep in our souls. Yet something about his kind of fatherly love convinces us that though our sins are many and though they are awful, we are invited to come close to him and find a remedy for our self-imposed doom. That's the kind of love of this father. He invites us close in spite of ourselves to find a remedy. And how backwards is this from our present cultural moment, which treats people how? If you, if you are a, a public face, if you're a newscaster, if you're a sports analyst, if you're a political figure and, and you're live on camera and the wrong thing slips out of your mouth that is severely politically incorrect, what is our cultural response? You're done. You're gone. For good. Canceled. Career, gone. Income, gone. Influence, gone. That's what the world offers you with your sin and with mine. And so they deal with immorality in their own way, but with absolutely no hope for a remedy, for reconciliation, for the power of overcoming grace. None of that. How significant and beautiful and powerful then the love of a father who doesn't ignore our sin, he doesn't wave it away as though it's no big deal, he, he doesn't let us make excuses for it, he doesn't make excuses for it, and yet he gives us hope in spite of it. That's what kind of father he is. We know this one biblical truth very well, deep in our souls, that sin separates us from the life that is in God. That's what it does by its very nature. Separation. It causes us to be so indebted that we have no hope of ever paying what is owed to God, morally speaking. And so our heavenly father, who loves his own so very much, paid the debt for his church. He loves us in such a way, this is amazing, that we feel ashamed of our sin, and yet at the very same time, we feel there is hope to be free from it. This is what the world can't give. It can only give shame and judgment. God allows us to experience shame for our wrongdoing, which is natural, but gives us hope in spite of it. He loves us despite our sin. Friends, he loved us before we knew that our sin could even be forsaken before we knew that there was even a possibility that it could be overcome. He loved us when we loved our sin more than we loved him. He loved us when we were his enemies. That's what kind of God he is. Romans 5.8, this is one to memorize, isn't it? God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were, what? Still sinners. Christ died for us. What is our hope in life and in death? that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit loves us and through Christ has canceled our sin debt and reconciled us to the Father so that we could be his children. The Bible gives us the picture of a family so that we would understand who we are as his church. And also, he gives us this picture so that despite the fear that would plague our hearts and set us on edge because of our sin, we can have confidence, and this is a very important word I want you to hear this morning. We can have confidence and we can rely. We can rely on something that is beyond ourselves, that is outside of ourselves. Look at this verse, 1 John four sixteen, And so we know, and what does he say? And we rely upon 
the love God has for us. That's what we rely on, not the other way around. We know and we rely upon his love for us as his children. You see there, we can't rely upon ourselves. We must not rely upon ourselves, and yet we would try to. And this is more evidence of our sinfulness. We would try to to work ourselves up into a frenzy, a desperation. No, 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 God, hold on. Let me prove. I want to show you. I have to tell you I'm in a frenzy. you you got to know I really, really, really do love you so much. I'd do anything for you. I'd go anywhere for you. I'd give up anything for you. Let me tell you all the ways so that you'll be convinced I'm desperate. Now, I hope we would do anything if God called us to do it. I hope we would give anything that he called us to give. But brothers and sisters, we cannot rely on that. We cannot rely on ourselves to have eternal hope. That will never do. How will we ever know if our love for him is good enough? How will we ever know if if we've gone deep enough, if it's pure enough, if we've done or given enough? We cannot place confidence in ourselves. He is our holy God. Our only hope is for him to make us like he is. And that's that's what the love of this father does for his children. It's exactly what he does. And as John says there, so we know and we rely on the love that our father has for us. He is a father who loves perfectly. And this is such a balm in our world, isn't it? Especially in this cultural moment. Fatherlessness is at an unprecedented high, it seems. And what things are more painful on this earth than that of a parent? And in many instances, statistically, specifically that of a father whose love is all but love, whose love is so very imperfect, who sins against his children and calls it love, who abuses them and calls it tough love, who shames them but without giving them hope of freedom or reconciliation or acceptance, who mocks them in their struggles, who derides them, who belittles them, again, all in the name of tough love, while giving them no hope for something better beyond themselves. This is often what love looks like in the homes of the culture. And so children being raised in this sort of environment, they begin to be frantic, and they attempt to perfectly modify their behavior, at least when dad is around, or mom perhaps, just desperate to gain even a crumb or a scrap of his approval that falls off his table. And no, you do not have an equal place at the table. You're on your hands and feet at the level of his boots where the crumbs fall, where the scraps fall. And if you go to every conceivable length that he would demand, then maybe, just maybe, you'll be blessed with a tiny scrap of his approval and respect, which is what you're so desperately longing for as his child. Often at the cost of your humiliation, your discouragement, your despair. What really gets this kind of father going, what really gives him a rush, what really excites him through the day, is the control he has over those whom he sees as weak and beneath him and inferior. He delights in seeing them put in their place. He delights in seeing them afraid of him, desperate to earn his love and his favor. For sons, often the thing they they so desperately want more than anything else is simply his respect and his approval. For daughters, what they often desperately long for so very much is his affection. But in either case, Precious young hearts, desperate hearts, yearning hearts, longing hearts, they're left wounded. In their home, they're not not given healing, they're given wounds. 
and they're given fear instead of security. So then, how deep, how very, very deep, and how wide is our Father's love for us, his church, his children? He's perfect in every way that the world has failed us. 1 John 4, 16, God is love, the real kind. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Remember when last week when we talked about that great day that's coming? That's a day of fear for those who've rejected Christ. It's supposed to be a day of confidence and security and anticipation for those who know him as Father. In this world, here's our confidence. In this world, we are like Jesus. And then, friends, this is a concept that is so desperately needed in our lives, in our homes, in our hearts. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Yes, we need clear teaching on what the Bible says about sin and judgment and hell and heaven. We need that. But fear of what God might do to you will never be a good enough motivator for you to step into and remain healthy in this relationship that he has designed to enjoy with you. Only love can be a, a strong enough motivator. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Now let us be clear, he does not ignore our sin. He loves us far too much as a father to do that, just as any good father or mother would not do that for their children. He loves us enough to discipline us, sometimes severely, if our rebellion and our stubbornness calls for it. He does this so that we might live, so that our souls might yet be saved. But while he doesn't ignore our sin, neither does he make us earn his love and his acceptance. It's one thing to say that, but friends, do we believe that? He does not ignore our sin, but neither does he make us earn his approval, his acceptance, his love. These are things that can only be given graciously as a gift from him. And so here's a principle I want you to consider on the screen for you. God does not want you to try to earn his love. Now, we should want to live lives that, that bless his heart and glorify him and please him. But in terms of this relationship, he does not want you to try to earn his love. He wants you to accept his love and let it, let it change you. He loves you first. While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us all the way to the cross. This is the only way for our fear to be displaced. Think of all the fears we have. Think of the fears that children have. This is the only way for them to be overcome. What are the fears in the heart of a child in a, in a broken home? What if I'm not good enough? What if I haven't done enough? What if I'm not truly loved? What if they knew who I really am and what I've really done? What if they saw the thoughts that I really have in my mind that no one else knows about? Or in relationship to God, what if I've gone too far beyond his reach? What if he rejects me forever? What if I haven't done enough to show him my sincerity? Friends, if we are looking to ourselves, what we will find over and over again to infinity is that we will never be enough we can only be free from our fear when we see that God has loved us as his children while we were yet sinners. And in receiving his love, we are given the freedom 
to finally overcome our sin. Because we want to live the way he designed us to live because we love him. Not because we're afraid of cosmic, eternal, divine spankings, essentially. But because our hearts desperately love our Father and we find all our hope and security in his arms. And so why would I want to spit in his face? Why would I want to slap away his hand that's been so benevolent and gracious extended toward me? It's love that is to motivate such action. It's not to say we should not have a healthy fear of God because, again, those who reject him will be judged and those who are his children who remain in sin will be disciplined and that should create within us a reverence and a holy fear of of him. Sometimes suffering in our lives is needless and is avoidable. Not always. I've, I've mulled something over in my mind, my heart, for a while and I want to pose it to you. Have any of you wondered whether it's good or not for us to tell our kids that we're proud of them? Now, the obvious human American answer would be, of course. You should tell them that all the time. I'm proud of you. Let's consider this for a moment. Does the Bible not condemn pride repeatedly? If we boast in anything, does the Bible not say, let it be the cross of Christ alone? So should we convey to our children a sense of pride in them? especially when we're often affirming that pride based on something they've done to to earn that pride from us. I've wrestled with this a bit because it's something I say, and it's the most natural thing in the world for a parent to want to tell their children, often, I'm proud of you. And as I've tried to sort this out, what I think I've realized, and I can't speak this today as, as dogma, as absolute doctrine of God, but I'd like for you to consider it, I think what I've kind of come to an understanding of is that the kind of pride that God so detests is that which is self-reliance and self-righteousness. That's an actual idol of the heart, a making of oneself God in, in the place of God. If we tell our kids that to be significant in this world, you have to be the best at everything. And if you want me to be proud of you, you have to be better than everyone else. You need to take home the gold. You need to stand first place on the podium. You need to sing the prettiest. You need to look the prettiest. You need to run the fastest. You need to be the strongest. You need to have the best grades. Then, if you do these things, I'll be lavish with pouring out to you how proud I am of you. I would think that would be very detestable in God's sight a very detestable kind of pride, even in your children, because what you're essentially doing is trying to live your own wicked pride vicariously through them, that for you to be on top is for me to be on top, because I'm your your parent, I'm the one that produced and made you, and look at how well this looks on me. If that's the case, then yes, I'd say that pride is a disease, and it's going to ruin some souls. But I've also come to realize that I think on many occasions, when we tell our kids we're proud of them, we're simply telling them that we love them no matter what. That often when I tell my children, hey, I'm proud of you, buddy, what I mean is I'm not ashamed to be your father, and I don't care who knows it. I'm delighted for you to be my son or my daughter. That's because so often in the Bible what we see is this was a culture of honor, shame. It's not like our Western independent culture. But all throughout the Bible we have this this cultural dynamic of the honor, shame, that everything to these people was to have honor in the family tribe, in the village. That's why the prodigal parable is is such a fascinating one in so many ways. And so often, when when we tell our children, I'm proud of you, what we're saying is that you really can believe that I love you no matter what. 
which they in their flesh might be tempted to think, nah, you're just saying that because that's what good parents, nice parents are supposed to say, but if you, if you saw things that you don't see and you knew things you don't know, I don't think you'd be so proud of me. But it's more a statement of I'm not ashamed to be in this relationship with you. This really hit home to me the other night. Uh, my wife and I were making our way in the evening as we always do to each of the kids' rooms, two boys in one, two girls in the other, and telling them goodnight. And after I said goodnight to the girls, I went into the boys' room and I knelt down into the bed of my youngest, my seven-year-old, and I said those very words, I'm proud of you, kiddo. And from a seven-year-old mouth, without hesitation, the words that came out of his lips were these, but I haven't done anything. And that, that both fascinated me and also almost made me weep all in the same moment, that a seven-year-old would already be trained to think in those terms, but I haven't done anything yet. Which means that he naturally already knows what? I've got to do something to earn those words from you, Dad. Again, it was kind of heartbreaking but inspiring in the same moment, and, and the words that came out next were very quick. You don't, buddy, you don't have to do anything. That's not what I'm saying. It's because you're my son, and I love you, and I'm happy to be your dad. That's what I mean. Romans 5.8, again, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is happy to be our father and for us to be his children in spite of this reality. 1 John 4.16, and so we know and we what? We rely on the love God has for us. I know for a fact there has to be people in this room, statistically, who have father wounds lingering in their hearts yet. Won't you please let those be brought into the light so that the eternal truth of God's word can bring healing to that heart? Because everything that we lack in this world that was withheld from us, God supplies in more than abundance. He more than makes up for the lack that we had in our own homes or broken family relationships. What, what cause do we have to remain bitter when he said, yes, I see, and so here's what I give? More than compensates. Look what the father says to his children, Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them, which means he cares about them. He values them. They haven't done anything to deserve it, to earn it. And then what's the main point of this? Are you not much more valuable than they? That the Father might care so tenderly for you, his child. John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, meaning each and every one of his sheep who he's called to and they've heard his voice into his pasture. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Friends, God gave us this picture of family in his word for the church to show us how he relates to us, his people, his children. We're the ones he loves. We're the ones he so dearly loves. And in that, we should take heart and find hope. Now, there's one last part of this I wanted to mention before we, we draw toward our conclusion here, that there does still need to be that little word of holy warning to those who would mishear, misapply, and abuse what God has said in these lavish, incredible truths of his grace. 
Love does not tell us just what we want to hear. Love tells us what we need to hear. And so a brief word of warning. If this incredibly good news that we've talked about today, news about a father who loves us just because of who he is and not because of what we've done, if this good news makes you want to keep sinning more and to, to do so comfortably, because it seems, well, okay, well, God will love me no matter what I do. Sin is just so fun. The world is calling my name. If this sort of good news were to make you want to be comfortable and happy and celebrate and indulge more in whatever the desires of the flesh might be for you, then you have not understood this good news. Not yet. Because this kind of love should cause us to feel both shame and hope as we're awakened to want to do the right thing for the right reason, to love our Father back and to please him. To die to the things of the flesh that break his heart and required the horrific cost of his son on the cross. To intentionally keep sinning, and comfortably so, saying, well, God's just going to forgive it all no matter what. That's like a father singing his love over his children, only for them to spit in his face the moment that he finishes his song. It's like they hear him proclaim his love, and then they turn and they walk out the door to the neighbor's house, where a father exists who's very perverse and cruel, and they say, hey, my dad's going to love me no matter what, I just found out, I want you to be my dad for now. Romans 6, 1 through 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. This can be a little terrifying because there's a lot of God's creation that's good that we enjoy. So we always have to be careful to qualify what John means there, which he'll do for us. But if, if you love, he means a certain thing by the world. If you love that, then the love of the Father is not in you. And then he's going to define for us what he means by world. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these come not from the Father to his children, but those come from the world to those who are children of the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, lest we fear that this is saying that a true believer, a sincere believer, will never again sin from the moment of their conversion until their dying day, we also take heart in learning here that genuine believers who do genuinely love the Father and have received his love yet continue to be plagued by the flesh, by the world, by temptation. I think what God is communicating is that what matters the most in these instances is our attitude toward the sin, toward the flesh. What's your attitude toward it? Is it something you can continue to admit and maintain is wrong and that you're determined to be against and to fight that God's spirit might be in contention with your own flesh and that eventually will overcome? Or have you been one who very much like the culture has just decided they can change morality to be whatever it, it, that you want it to be so that you can live comfortably in what you used to think was wrong, and you therefore begin to call light darkness and darkness light. In such a case, then no, you cannot have the love of the Father in you. In this battle with the flesh, where has God said that the requirement is sinless perfection from that moment until the moment of death? If that were the case, who among us would have any hope at all? I mean, we'd be done, done for. Rather, writing to Christians, writing to the church, not to the world, 
John says in 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We know that sin will continue to confront the church, the family of God, which is why John's very next words are these. And they're very helpful. They're very life-giving. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My dear children, who's he obviously writing to? Who are children in this context? It's the church. It's the family of God. I write these things to you so that you won't sin. Like, that's the goal. That's the aim. That's where this is all going. But if anybody does sin almost like he knows what our propensities are and what's going to be the reality. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What it seems God requires first is that your attitude towards sin agree with his. That there are things that are wrong because he said so, and they cause death, not life. And these are to be set against for the children of God. And so when you slip, when you're tempted, when you fall, you acknowledge it for what it is. You're quick to repent. You're quick to confess. You want his presence to be restored to you, your assurance and your confidence in him. And you're determined to never quit fighting this fight, no matter how hopeless or discouraging it might seem, this battle with the flesh. You're determined to stay in the fight. And maybe it's just slow, painful inches over time, but you're gaining toward eternity. You're gaining toward holiness. You're gaining toward him. As you seek to have your flesh crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be fully done away with, that we might live in righteousness. There's just a couple more passages I want to mention here in closing. One that I think is so perfect for today. It addresses both the seriousness of sin, but also the hope of eternal life for those who have been adopted into God's family. And again, this is the picture God gives us. Adoption, children, family, father, Romans 8, 12 through 17, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Do you still feel convicted when you're, you're, you're in sin? Does it make you uncomfortable? Is there a sense of guilt? Is there a sense of wanting to be free of it, wanting to overcome it? Guess what? That's really good news for you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in a child. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, which was a very comfortable intimate, in-the-home Hebrew word for father. This really hit home to me one day. I was on a flight, and there's a Jewish family, and this little curly-haired boy, adorable, came up the aisle to his dad, Abba, Abba. And it just, I mean, all of a sudden, there's things that just take on a certain relevance in a moment like that that you kind of gloss over at other times. Like, no, 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 we need more reverence than that, or not to approach God so flippantly. It seems to be that God very much wants that level of intimacy with his children. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, 
in order that we also may share in his glory. Sufferings of Christ were in his body very much, and also in the brief separation between him and his father because of sin. We are to have similar sufferings as his children. If those sufferings aren't in you, that's cause for concern. That's why he says, if indeed. Like, you better make sure this is the case. But if you see these fruits, if you see these evidences in you, yes, you do want to be more like him. Yes, you do want to overcome those things that continue to tear you down and give you guilt and shame and fear. Then take comfort in these words. Psalm 68, 5. A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. And then look at this, verse 6. God sets the lonely in families. And in the New Testament sense, what do we know that really means? Truly, in the most important sense, the most eternal sense, the family of God. What, what complaint can we, can we raise to him at this point if we've been let down by earthly families or earthly fathers or mothers? He's more than made up for it in what he's given. I will, I will be your father and I will put you in a home where you have hope and where you're loved. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Those who are set against him, those who have rejected him, those who don't believe in his name. As the church, we are to understand our relationship to God as one of family. In a healthy home, where, what is there? There's genuine love. There's acceptance. And most specifically for children, what is there in a good, whole, healthy home? What is there? There's no fear of the worst things. Now, there's some fears that plague our homes, even good homes, even wholesome homes, even spiritually alive homes, but there's no fear of the worst things. For children in a home that is whole, there's no fear of abandonment. There's no fear of abuse. There's no fear of going hungry. There's no fear of being cold. I mean, there's, we're a little chilly in the mornings before I get the fire going, but you know what I mean. There's no fear of having your heart broken to pieces beyond repair. There's no fear of being despised and hated and rejected within these walls. There's no fear of being shoved outside, the door locked, never to gain admittance again. Why do we think that that's how God treats us in, in our struggles with the flesh? I mean, how many of you have kids who have kids when they've blown it, when they've just been on a tear all day, when their attitude has been something otherworldly, when they've deliberately disobeyed, whatever the case, how many of you set them out on the curb with Tuesday's garbage to be picked up and never brought back to your house? Sorry, kid. This is what sin does. I mean, we would never do that. Think of what we abide. Think of what we tolerate. Think of what we patiently endure for the sake of the, the acceptance and the life and the love of the home. Think of what it takes for that relationship and that home to completely, permanently fracture and break apart. And, and what? We think God is infinitely less loving than that, than we are? We're so quick to ascribe this sort of love to him. Oh, I, I, I better do this and this and this, and I better not ever slip up in this or this. I'm done. I'm gone. He'll reject me forever. There's no fear of this in a home that's whole. There's no fear that the arms that you long to embrace you remain closed and firm and unyielding and cold. There's no fear of that. What is a child always going to find in a home where there's life? These arms are like this, especially when we've gone through some nastiness, some brokenness. Then this is what we need the most. There's no fear of impoverishment. There's no fear of death. 
Friends, there's a home for you in the Father's house, and you don't have to pay for this real estate. It's offered to you free. There's no mortgage. But you also have to realize that certain things can't be moved into this eternal house with you. They have to be left in a world that's fading away. You'll have to leave them behind. Better to do it now. Better to do it sooner than try to do it later. John 14, 1 through 6, do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Luke 12, 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. Why should we not be afraid? For the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Not just admittance into his family. He's giving you the entire kingdom that's his, the life that is his, to share with you. What kind of a radical verse is this? Don't be afraid. Your father's been pleased to give you the kingdom. 1 John 4, 18, once again, I've said it a couple times a day, but one last time, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is made perfect in love. 